I went to the office and I saw the first twin tower, you know, smoke coming out. I didn't understand what was going on. But when I reached the office, uh, then they told me, oh, a plane flew into a World Trade Center. And then we went up to to the 23rd floor of UNFPA and we watched both towers smoking. And then we saw the towers go down. Hi there, and welcome to the 11th episode of the UN Job Finder Career Podcast by Antona. My name is Magnus Bucht, and for those of you listening to this podcast for the first time, this is a show for people who are interested in a career within international development sector. Working for international organizations such as the United Nations, European Union, development banks, intergovernmental or non-governmental organizations. We're talking to people who are having a remarkable career in this field, trying to get their stories about how they once entered, choices that they've made, challenges that they have faced, and not least to hear what kind of advice they can share with us. It's been a while since our last episode, and for those of you who are regularly using our website, youandjobfinder.org, I'm sure you'll understand the reasons for this short break. During the last months, we've started partnership with new international organizations, we've launched a new structure and design of the website, and also introduced the possibility to register and sign up to get your personal job alerts just to name a few things. Continuous improvements to the site will of course continue and we have many more features planned that you will benefit from. But from now on, we'll also continue with our podcast series on a more regular basis. In this episode, I have the pleasure to talk to Cornelia Musa. Cornelia is the Human Resources Director at WIPO. You will hear more about WIPO and Cornelia's career in our conversation But what's clear is that this is a person who have seen and experienced a lot. We'll go over, cover many different topics and keep your ears open as Cornelia will share lots of valuable career advice. So without further ado, let's get right into the interview. Today I'm very happy and honored to have Cornelia Musa here as a guest at the UN Job Finder Career Podcast. Cornelia, welcome and great to have you with us. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be with you and to speak to prospective UN job applicants. Great, thanks. So Cornelia, you are a person that with enormous experience from working with different UN organizations. Currently, you are the Human Resources Director for the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO. And before that, you had the same role, HR Director for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, UNRWA. And you've also had senior management positions with the UN Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia, International Trade Center, ITC, and and many years of of experience. So, Cornelia, that was a a very short summary of of your career, but please tell us a bit more of of who you are and and what you have done so far. Yes, thank you. Um, Actually, I joined the UN way back, many years back in 1977. And uh, I did that after um, completing my education here in Switzerland at the time. I I, I had a commercial diploma that I got. uh, And then I worked in the private sector for a year. And um, that was a a large Swiss uh, uh, company who did um, 
export machines, equipment uh, all over the world. And after a year in the job, I I didn't really feel that this was uh, exciting enough. So I um, I wrote to uh, to the UN in Vienna. That was the mm. close. Uh, that was that was the, uh, the UN headquarters that had been um, established there. And um, I asked uh, at the time it was UNIDO, I believe. I asked them um, that I wanted to work with them and. Um, asked for advice about how to go about it and they answered me back very kindly and said well um, if you want to work with us then why don't you come here and um, and 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 we'll take it from there we'll see so <laughs> i went to i went to vienna i i am austrian i must say uh, and that um, made vienna as a choice uh, easier my father was austrian but we, I grew up and uh, lived all my life in Switzerland. Okay. And um, uh, so I went to Vienna and they gave me uh, some tests. And um, um, at the end of that, uh, they said, okay, here is a job. Uh, um, uh, three months, a short-term thing, something quite uh, junior, entry level. And uh, they assigned me actually to UNRWA at the time. UNRWA was um, in Vienna on a evacuation from Lebanon because they had to move their headquarters out of Lebanon very quickly because of the civil war there. And so UNRWA was, it was in temporary quarters and, uh, and uh, I got a job there. And so that's where it all started. Oh, amazing. I, I, I think that many people will be envious when they hear how you were able to enter into the UN. Yeah, not really a, a way that is um, manageable right now, of course. Yes, that's right. So, lucky. so, so at that point, what was it that made you interested in in the UN, or specifically, maybe was it UNIDO? Or yeah, well, you know, it it just opened the door, and it was a it was a whole new world, and uh, and uh, I hadn't got a clue about what these people were were, were doing, why they were there, and, and and so on. So I had to learn all this very quickly, and in fact the. Uh, I ended up in HR, in HR policy that dealt with job classification and uh, policy development and so on. And so um, um, after a few months, UNRWA went back to, to Beirut because the civil war was supposed to have ended. And so they agreed that I come with them to help them pack and, and unpack at the other end, basically. And so I I, I went to, to, to Lebanon. And it was a it was really exciting and we set up offices there and tried to get the operation going again from from beirut but then the civil war actually didn't quite stop as expected and um i decided to go back to vienna because i thought this was wasn't really working very well for me and um, then i had a short uh, job with the atomic energy agency but then UNRWA decided to um, to come back to vienna um, because the civil war set in again and so they packed up and came back to vienna and then i joined the advance party of UNRWA then and helped uh, some 200 people and uh, staff and their families to basically come back to Vienna and to establish themselves and to put the kids back in school and to find flats for the people and to to basically start all over again. So, and then UNRWA was in Vienna until uh, 1996 or some or thereabouts. Okay. So it, it, uh, it, and during that time we did quite a lot of interesting work, basically 
supporting the organization during a, a number of emergencies, not only in Lebanon, but also then we had Intifada in, uh, in the West Bank and Gaza, and that uh, posed a whole uh, lot of challenges, which um, we tried to the extent possible to manage uh, from Vienna. And, uh, and, and so this was a, a great uh, learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you remained with UNRWA in Vienna until then? Yes. Uh, well, and then, uh, then I moved to Gaza in uh, 1996. And uh, I, because, because then it, there was a political decision that UNRWA headquarters would not go back to Beirut, but that it would establish itself in Gaza because the Palestinian Authority had uh, set up their quarters in Gaza at the time. So uh, uh, the Secretary General of the UN made a decision that UNRWA should move to Gaza. So they made a building there for the headquarters and, uh, and we basically let go of the staff that we had in Vienna. All the staff that were brought from, from Lebanon, they were, they were sent back, uh, back home or they were settled in other jobs uh, in, in Vienna. And, um, and then I went to, to Gaza and we hired some 200 uh, local staff there. We trained them and, um, and the headquarters was up and running. And when that was finished, then I moved to another UN job in New York. Mm. Uh, to UNFPA and um, I was there until at the end of 2001 from the beginning of 99 till the end of 2001 I was in New York then I came to Geneva to work for the International Trade Center and then I went back to the Middle East at the beginning of 2005 to work uh, for the um, Economic Commission for Western Asia in Beirut that's part of the UN Secretariat, so mm. it, it is a very different um, sort of setup and structure. And um, I was there until March 77, when UNRWA rang me and said, um, we, we're going to have a, an HR director position, how about applying? So I did just that, and uh, I, I, I was selected. And in March of uh, 2007, I moved from, um, from Beirut to Amman. I was HR director in UNRWA uh, in Amman for five and a half years. And then I decided that it was time to go back to to, to Europe. And uh, I applied for this job here with WIPO. And um, I, I was selected. And I've been here since uh, August of 2012. Mm. So um, this has all worked uh, very well. Indeed, it has. And the circle is sort of closed with you're back in Geneva where you once started. Kind of, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. Great. Well, um, I can understand that each of these positions have been um, really challenging, of course, and have given you um extreme amount of, of experience. Um, um, if you look at, I mean, you said that in the beginning, when you started working with a commercial company, you weren't really, it was not really what you were looking for in your career. And then, and then you remained, you started working with UNIDO and, and UNRWA and, and you remained with the UN. Um, when you started working for the, for the UN, even though it was a bit of an um, unusual entry into that, <laughs> into the UN, um, what has kept your passion or what was it maybe the, the biggest differences from, from going from the private sector and that commercial company and, and going into the UN if you, if you go back to that time? You know, it is, um, of course, 
a non-profit uh, environment and the UN is so varied, ha has such a wide range of mandates and the mandate kind of um, has a, a huge influence on the organization's culture. So if you work with refugees, it, it is one kind of atmosphere and mindset and, and, and nature of work. If you work in in um, in population uh, affairs like in UNFPA where you deal a lot with gender issue and women's issues it's 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 another thing has other kind of challenges then then the trade development or social and economic development is is very specific has its very specific you know specificities mm. and then here intellectual property is is quite specialized and we have a lot of people that uh, that are in this uh, ip field that have a legal background or people that uh, that uh, you know come from the it side so every every organization is so so different and um, and then also the environment that you you, you work in the duty station has has an impact. You work a lot with uh, with, with national staff and so on. So mm. there is a great range of, of different things. And then of course, you know the UN is is not a static uh, body, but it's 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 always um, uh, subject to 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 a great deal of change. Partly driven internally by mandates changing. And partly also driven uh, externally by by member states, uh, by the environment that we have to uh, respond to, deal with. Just think of the organisations that uh, that deal with refugees, mm. um, or that uh, that um, that deal with uh, relief. Uh, you know that that step in when there is a crisis, peacekeeping, and so on. So it has such a huge range of of, of, of different things that one can work in that. Uh, you know, to me, it is much more vibrant and varied. And then you have all the different cultures working uh, together. Mm. So that makes it very interesting. Of course, nowadays, you also have that to some extent in the private sector because we have multinationals and uh, and they also operate globally. And, you know, there is much more mobility generally than, than it was at the time when I joined the UN system. But mm. still, I think the UN has a very specific, uh, very rewarding uh, work environment. Mm, indeed. Thank you. Well, um, I can imagine that there is, of course, a, a huge difference between the organization that you're working for currently, WIPO, compared to, for example, of course, the, the mandate of, of UNRWA. Um, um, but if, and, and I would actually would like to hear more about WIPO. I'm sure that many of our listeners know about WIPO and, and what you do, but there might also be some people who are quite unsure about what you do. So could you please tell us a bit about what is it that WIPO is, is doing and, and its mandate? Um, you know, WIPO is an excellent organization and it has a very important mandate. Intellectual property is, is, is an extremely important field, more so nowadays than, 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 than ever in the past. And it has been subject to enormous change with the... Uh, with the onset of, of digitalization, just, uh, you know, think about what has changed in terms of, of copyright in the, in the music industry and, and, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, so um, it, it is very, very interesting to be here. WIPO administers many international treaties or we help member states to, to administer uh, international treaties. And of course, it provides um, uh, services for people who want to file patents uh, and um, and who want to protect uh, themselves um, in terms of, 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 of copyright and so on. 
So BIPOD does quite a lot of different things. We also do development. We help, uh, we help developing countries deal with their intellectual property issues, uh, help them set up uh, in intellectual property infrastructures. And then we have a number of um, very important databases which are available free of charge to, to, to clients uh, who want to inform themselves on, on many different aspects of, of intellectual property. Hmm. So a very wide range of services. We are quite a compact uh, organization. We are not large in UN systems terms. We are about 1,200 staff here, mostly in Geneva. We have some external offices, but they are they are quite uh, small. We have uh, offices in Japan, in Singapore, in Moscow, in China, in, in, in Beijing, an office in Rio, and a liaison office in, uh, in New York. But, okay. but largely, the action is here in Geneva. Okay. And so, you know, this is a, a great duty station. It's really a, a, an excellent place to work and to live. And uh, staff find, uh, you know, at Vipo a, a very good compound with, with, with good facilities. We also uh, uh, have a conducive work environment where uh, staff have some development opportunities. They have training opportunities and so on. And for, you know, families, Geneva offers a great, great quality of life. And um, so it, it really is a good place to be. Mm, great. Thank you. One thing that I'm, I'm curious about, because I know that WIPU compared to, um, I presume, most other UN organizations, is, is a self-funding organization. Yes, what, that's right. What does that mean? Well, it means that well, we fund, uh, we, we, we finance 95% of, of our costs are, are generated by fees that, uh, that come in from patent uh, um, uh, registration and, and similar services. Hmm. And so it, it is great, of course, that, uh, that, uh, that we generate our own income, but also that makes us a bit uh, um, vulnerable to uh, swings in 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 the, in the global economy. If the economy goes down, if if people file less patents, have less uh, interest in 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 patent, in intellectual property, in innovations, and file less, then our income can go down. So we have to uh, manage our resources very very carefully. Hmm. Okay. So are you? Would you say that in a way you are more similar to a private company in that sense? In, in many respects, yes, we are. But we are part of the UN common system, so we pay the, the, the UN salaries and, uh, and, and benefits and so on. So we cannot just, you know, pay people less because we have less no. money. No, no, <laughs> uh, exactly. and, and therefore we have to, you know, create reserves and, uh, and generally have a, a workforce that, that, is, that is flexible where we have a core and we have some, some, some other... Um, ways of resourcing personnel around that. Hmm. Okay, great. Thank you for for you sharing that. So going back to you and 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 to your career, I mean, with the different organizations that you have been working with, the political um, environment that you've been with, not least, of course, with with UNRWA and UNFPA, and working in Beirut and in Amman, I'm, I'm sure that you have so many stories that we could talk about for hours, but could you give an, an example of an experience that you've been through and, or, or maybe 
a story that you're really proud of, of that, or that has been rewarding for you in, in your career? Yeah, you know, um, two things come to mind, really. One is, is, is about the HR story, if you want. And as I said earlier, you know, we spend most of, 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 of the resources of an organization in HR. And HR is quite a strategic uh, function. In fact, if HR doesn't work, then the organization doesn't work properly. So so it is very important that that this job here is done right, that, that the HR functions well, that we provide a, a good work environment for the staff, that we have policies and systems in place that function well so that people, you know, feel good about, uh, about how things operate, that they don't get frustrated when things take time or, or things are not properly done. Um, we also have to support managers, of course, to manage their, their staff properly, to motivate, to manage performance, to, to create a, a good working environment for their staff. And, um, and um, we have to manage the, 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 the costs of the, of the organization. So if all of these things work together well, then we have a we have a good uh, uh, organization where the staff are happy, where they can actually contribute to the best of their ability. They can be innovative, they can be creative, they can they can apply their skills and so on and so forth. Hmm. And and that 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 is very important. So so when that happens, then the HR director is is, is a happy person. <laughs> <laughs> Another rewarding side of my career is that. Especially at the beginning, when 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 we were working in UNRWA in that very difficult uh, environment where you know the field was 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 in crisis, we hired a lot of young folks that that were excellently qualified, came out of university, and we put them into into West Bank and Gaza as refugee affairs officers. We hired hundreds of these because it was a very, very stressful uh, job, and we, we only kept people for relatively short periods of time, and, and we tried to find the best of, of people from all over the world, from, from all countries, a lot of them, by the way, from, from Sweden and, uh, and, uh, and, and from other places. So many of these actually they they stayed in the UN system and they made excellent careers and you know I come across them once in a while they are in senior positions now and they are all over the place and um, and not anymore just dealing with refugees but uh, with you know you name it hmm. with, with, with gender issues with uh, economic and social development with peacekeeping with um, whatever whatever and sometimes when I run into these people they say oh you were the first person that uh, that I spoke to <laughs> when I joined the UN right and right. And, uh, and they made uh, uh, great careers and I thought that that was um, very very uh, rewarding and I like to coach uh, young people who, who come to me and, and you know come out of school and they see this huge amount of opportunity in front of them where to turn where to go how to how to start hmm. how to start thinking and um, it is uh, it is very interesting if you can sort of you know give some guidance and share your experience and, and help these uh, young people to find their way excellent and and that's also what we're hoping that we will get from you during this interview so that's that's excellent so um maybe if you turn that 
coin and, and going from what has been rewarding for, for you. I'm sure that you've also had lots of experience where um, that kept you awake during night and that has been a challenge for, for you or, or, of course, for the organization that you've been, that you've been working with. Um, could you give us a flavor of, of the type of, of challenges that, that you have faced and that yeah, has been a, a struggle for you? Yeah, I, I I think that uh, you know there could be lots of stories here, and challenges come in many shapes and and, and forms, of course. Mm. And uh, and um, one a couple that I can think of are, for example, in UNRWA, you work in an extremely resource constrained environment, and you see the needs everywhere, and you see you know refugees are are, are living in very very different difficult conditions, even 65 years on, you know, this, this refugee organization has been there and, uh, and, and, and you, you can't really do what, what needs to be done because the resources are not there. You can only do a, a, a very bare minimum and that is quite, uh, quite challenging and quite frustrating. And even as regards the management of the staff, UNRWA has more than 30,000 staff and you know they the salaries are, are what they are and uh, and and that's what uh, what unra can 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 basically pay and um you spend mm-hmm. a lot of your time trying to make uh, ends meet and it just never is enough uh, there's never enough money to to do what what needs to be done and and that is quite quite uh, draining and, uh, and 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 quite difficult mm. that's one one kind of challenge another kind of challenge is is operating in in sudden crisis from one day to the next you find yourself in an emergency and in my case this is was usually related to armed conflict uh, in the middle east and then you know <laughs> things start to sort of fall apart and mm. and and you 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 will find in such a situation a few people that that can still think clearly and and are level headed and and do the right things and and pull together and and um and manage uh, an emergency so you got to get your stuff out of harm's way make sure the families get out of the way try to evacuate try to move people to to safe places keep operations going keep hr services running to the extent possible but also in some cases you have to 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 continue with the with the organization's mandate like in UNRWA, mm. even if there is a crisis you have you have to provide services to refugees still and um, and uh, that uh, that that can be quite uh, quite challenging. Now we try to plan for emergencies, but one emergency is never the same as another. And so no, exactly. And so you know you got to you got to still um, really struggle to um, to make things happen and to to manage a situation which which is completely fluid and uh, and out of control. So that's another kind of challenge. Mm. Yes, indeed. I, yep, sorry, did I interrupt you? At a more personal level, there are also challenges for 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 the staff, of course, working in a, in a, in a UN environment, you know. And as regards my own situation, I can think of managing a dual career family. I found that actually quite quite difficult. My husband also worked for the UN, and and we were very fortunate that early on in our careers we 
we had some stability. We had a long period of stability in Vienna. We worked both in the same location, in the same organization, in fact, and it allowed us to have to have two children and um, to 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 raise them. And when they came towards the end of their high school years, I had to move to Gaza, or I was offered a job in Gaza with mm. UNRWA, and uh, and and the choice was, you know, of taking it and dealing with the family situation, or of uh, of stepping out of the job and uh, you know staying in Vienna and looking after the family. So we we had to have these quite difficult discussions at home, of course, my husband and I, and we decided that I would go to Gaza and he would stay behind with the kids uh, in Vienna. And that was very hard. That that, mm. that was not easy at all. And um, we managed uh, to do it uh, because Gaza is a fa non-family duty station. And so in a place like that, you have more time free. You get out once in a while. And then, of course, you, you, you go home and you, you spend time with the family. Now, a couple of years after I went to Gaza, my husband's job also uh, disappeared because UNRWA closed its offices completely in Vienna. And um, he then moved to Bosnia to peacekeeping and later to Kosovo. And by that time, um, my my daughter, the, who is the elder, she was ready to go to university, and my son joined me in New York, and and he went to school there. So um, you know that's how we we managed it, uh, and we kept our house in Vienna, and that was the base for the family. That's where you know we would spend all our free time, of course, and. Uh, and this is how we sort of managed to, 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 to keep things going. But this is quite, quite challenging. I've seen it um, many, many times that this leads to real difficult situations for families. And, uh, and the UN is not always able to, to, to deal with this properly because there are quite a number of very good duty stations where you can, you know, raise a family and, and, and have your spouse and all that, and, and it works very well. But then there are duty stations where it is not possible. And then also, when the spouse also has a job or has a profession or, or wants to have a career, it, it's not always easy to manage this very well in the UN system. What the UN does is to ensure, to the extent possible, that in in the uh, countries where it operates, the spouses get work permits. They can work if they if they want to, but the UN doesn't actually find a job for the spouse. The spouse has to find his or her own job, and that is sometimes a challenge, especially in the smaller duty stations, you know, out in developing countries. And uh, it can be quite um, quite uh, difficult for staff members if uh, the, the spouse comes to a duty station with the expectation of, you know, yes, I'll find myself a job, and then it doesn't happen, or it cannot happen, or, or whatever, then then you have an unhappy spouse, but also you have an unhappy staff member, and it, it, it is not a good situation. So th this is a challenge that many people face in the UN, mm. and um, it's something that has to be considered, you know, early on. Indeed. No, thank you so much for that, Cornelia. I think that that's really valuable information for people who are thinking about having a career in, in, in any international organization about the, if you want to call it, the, the, the cost that it can have on, on a personal level. 
So, you, I mean, looking at you, I mean, now when you tell about the story about that, what you and your family had to go through, what did you did you have any own sort of coping strategy for how to deal with that? And 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 also, I mean, I can only imagine the stress that it puts on the family to have. Um, one family member, like you said, you, you, your husband was working in, in Kosovo, and that was maybe during the time of, of the, the when it was a war ongoing there, and, and you were in, in Gaza, which is also a, 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 a duty station where you could, of course, end up in a, in a um, in a dangerous situation. So, how did you cope with with that stress? Is there any advice that you can give to others who who might be coming to that situation? Yeah, Um, it's a tough question, you know, coping with stress. Well, first of all, if you're in HR and there is a crisis, you're you're busy. Uh, (laughs) And uh, and the first thing that uh, you do is to tell your family, I'm fine. Everything is okay. I remember there were a couple of situations. First of all, in New York, you know, when the 9-11 disaster happened, I was actually there. Hmm. And uh, I went to the office in the morning and I saw the the, 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 the first twin tower, you know, smoke coming out. I didn't understand what was going on. But when I reached the office, uh, then they told me, oh, a plane flew into, into the World Trade Center. And then we went up to to the 23rd floor of UNFPA and we watched in the meantime both towers smoking and then we saw the towers go down oh. and that was that was that was just um, dreadful so um, we were panic stricken of course and then the news came that well there's another plane in the air it seems to be a terrorist attack there's another plane in the air and we didn't know where it was heading and so that uh, that uh, caused a lot of um, panic hmm. so i i called vienna and i spoke to my son and i told him look uh, something's happening here just for you to know that i'm fine that uh, everything is not okay but i'm okay and um, and uh, just you know tell everyone else that that uh, I'm not in the World Trade Center. That I'm 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 okay. So th- that was one situation. And then the next one was uh, when I was in Lebanon. We had uh, uh, suddenly there was a, a, a crisis between uh, Hezbollah and and Israel because uh, something happened and we had a uh, there was a, a an air attack uh, from the Israelis on uh, on Beirut and. One nice morning, we woke up and the bombs were coming down. And uh, again, you know, it was a matter of telling the family, you know, this is what's going on here. And probably the phone lines will go down before long, just to to let you know that, um, you know, I'm fine. Mm. And um, I'll I'll call you when I can. So so basically, you know, just putting people in, 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 in the know. Um, it, it is always worse for people who are outside to to deal with a situation like this than when you're actually in the in the middle. Because if you don't know what's going on, then um, then um, then it it, it it causes a lot of anxiety. Of we also had uh, we had some we had some car bombs in, in Beirut, and you know when this happened, every time the, the phone lines went down and you couldn't communicate. So you you develop some kind of coping strategies, and and the people know that uh, that uh, you know you're 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 okay. Hmm. 
Yeah, and I and I presume also for, from your position that you had to deal with the staff security almost, of course, before you could even think about your own security. Absolutely, that's right. When we had the war um, uh, in um, in Beirut, that was in 2006. We actually had that was in the middle of summer in July, and a lot of staff brought all their extended family to Beirut, and we had to uh, to evacuate. And uh, we we had to all the organizations pulled together. UNRWA gave us buses, and uh, and uh, we we managed to 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 have some convoys to to ship people out of harm's way but that was quite uh, quite a challenge and when 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 we had everybody out of the country then we we took a boat to cyprus and uh, we went uh, to vienna and we set up our computer systems in vienna and we continued the hr business there hmm. so has that made you i'm curious more decisive perhaps i mean because you have been so many times in situations where you have to make quick decisions and and, and of course analyze the um, analyze what the decision would be best maybe not with as much input as you would like to have yes indeed you know um you develop uh, of course uh, important experience and uh, and uh, you can uh, bring that to to situations um as i said earlier not one situation is the same as another, but but certain things do repeat themselves. Uh, for example, it's easily overlooked how important communication is mm. you, you, to keep communication systems up uh, and running so that you can communicate with staff, you can convey messages, um, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, we are here, we are not here, uh, you know, what happens to salaries, what happens to contracts, what happens to medical insurance, because people have questions and uh, and you have to be able to, to give answers and if the systems are, are down, then it's quite, uh, quite a challenge. So, yeah, I think that one learns from one, you know, situation to the next. Hmm. Great. Well, Cornelia, now it, it, we had a lot of focus on, on um, of course, the challenges and, and working in, in hazardous situation and in conflict situation. So we, if, we, if we leave that, um, and I, I, I still hope that people will be encouraged to work for organizations where, where this is, of course, a reality. But if, if you look at yourself um, having this successful career that you've had with the different organizations, would you say that you have a, a personal habit or a trait that has been critical for your success? Um. You know, I think that it's very important to do good forward planning. And also, one should never sort of rest on one's laurels and say, okay, now I have a great job and, you know, fantastic, and, and this is it. You, the UN is a fast-moving environment. Things change, technology changes, job, uh, jobs change, processes change. And also, one has to... Um, keep in touch with one's you know, with, with professional development so mm -hmm. so one has to keep one's skills sharp and and and, and up to date and uh, and one has to you know plan ahead and have have good multi-year forward planning mm. excellent so you 
if you would say that the most important lessons that you would like to share with our listeners who, who wants to pursue an international career, what, what would that be? You know, important lessons for an international career. Um, first of all, I think people need to think about what it is that they want for themselves in terms of a, a professional career mm. and for their families. Um, most organizations require a degree of mobility. And so, you know, people will be who, who go and work for places like UNDP or UNHCR or UNICEF, they, they, they will be faced with, with the kinds of mobility issues that I described. Mm. But then there are other organizations where this is, 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 is probably less the case. Like in Viper, we don't have issues with mobility because we are here. And, uh, and people are not expected to, to, to move to other places uh, periodically. Mm. Also, I guess that there are, there are certain staff that are not so much subject to mobility. You know, the, the people that are working in, in the support areas uh, like um, administration, finance, uh, procurement, uh, and so on, they, they will be less, uh, you know, having to move around than people who are, who are in, in, in program areas. So one has to think about uh, what to expect uh, in, in terms of, of that. Mm-hmm. And then um, another important lesson is the, is the, is the continuous um, uh, professional development because, um, you know, one has to compete for jobs at regular intervals and, uh, and uh, one has to stay in touch with one's own profession. Mm-hmm to make sure that you like you said that you have the forward planning and make make sure that your skills are always actual right yeah that's right and then languages of course are also important uh, and so um you know various organizations have have different language needs but sometimes one has a, a, an advantage to have an additional language and uh, if if two candidates compete for the same job and uh, one has you know excellent um, this that and the other in terms of UN languages then sometimes it can make a difference mm. so it's 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 good to learn things it's good also to do something intellectually that is uh, maybe not so related to the job to to give balance uh, uh, i always found that very very good mm. great so so looking at wipo um why would you say that people should come and, and work for for you? Well, I think that we are, you know, a very good organization that does very, very important work. We have a, we, a very good working environment for for our staff. We have some development opportunities. Many people come here and they work here for a few years and then they go back to their to their national IP offices and they they take the the experience uh, with them so you know very many good reasons for for, for being here and our our um, area that we work in is rapidly evolving it's becoming more important uh, all the time and we want to hire the best people that we can find mm. Mm. so you, I'm sure that many of our listeners who or hearing this also would would like to get some tips on on how to get a job with WIPO. What, what do you have anything to share there? And and maybe are there any specific sort of areas that you are 
trying to recruit or that you are recruiting currently if you look at sort of key um, you know, occupational areas or, or skill sets that you are looking for right now? Look, most of our services are um, are provided through IT platforms. They are all provided through electronic means, databases and registration systems and so on. And so IT skills are, are, are very important and we, we have been hiring many IT people and we will be continuing to do that. Then, of course, we also hire people that have an IP intellectual property background hmm. and um, then we also hire people that are in in, in development that, that come from various parts of the world and they have experience in uh, in uh, in developing countries and particularly relating to intellectual property so and then of course uh, being a UN organization we we have regularly a need for people in support uh, areas um, which is uh, finance, procurement, HR, uh, oversight, um, and, and, and so on. So, you know, those, those are the jobs that we will continue to advertise. Mm. Now, in terms of the process, like all organizations, we, we have uh, an online recruitment system. Currently, um, we have uh, a system which uh, is... It, it, it is... Uh, like you have it in many other UN organizations. We will probably change it in the coming month to, to a more sophisticated one. But there is not one UN portal where you can apply and then you are in the system. You have to apply for every organization separately, which is a little bit of a, of a challenge. Now, I think that it's important that people realize with, with these electronic recruitment systems, what has happened is that we get a lot more applications than we used to get in the past because it's very easy to to apply once you're in the system then you know it takes a few clicks uh, uh, with the mouse and you submit an application it's not uh, you know pages and pages of, of forms that, that that one has to complete like like in the past right and that means that the volume has gone up uh, so we get for every job, you know, several hundred applications. We, we recently had a P3 job in, in, in administration and we had 350 applications. And so it means that for the HR uh, colleagues who have to go through the slot to, to find out where the qualified and the best candidates are, they have to go manually through this. It's, we have search systems, but we, we don't rely on them 100%. <clears throat> so we do look at every application. And so it is very important that, the, um, that we find the information that we are looking for quickly, because the, the recruitment colleagues are not spending, you know, half an hour on each application. They have to, 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 to see whether the person has the, the qualifications, the experience, the language, and the, the and any other technical requirements uh, for, of the job. Are these there? Yes or no? And and if yes, they go on one side of the pile, and if no, they go on the other. Now, if people can't find what they are looking for, if it's not clear whether somebody has, you know, the experience that is required or the languages then the chances is, is that they will not go into the into the into the yes list <laughs> are, are higher so it's it's in the interest of applicants to make sure that the recruiter finds at a glance what the essential requirements are of the job mm -hmm. so 
if a degree in XYZ is required, put it there, put it there clearly. If a professional qualification uh, in something or other is required, put it there. If language requirements are there, state clearly, do you have it, yes or no? And then the experience has to also speak to the requirements that are, that are listed in the vacancy announcement. Because usually, you know, in the first, in the, in the, in the couple of most recent job is where you expect to find the relevant experience. So it, it is very important that the application is tailored to the job and very clear. Excellent. That's, that's, that's about applying. Now, then after that, we usually have written tests for those who are on, a, on an initial long list not even a, a short list yet but if we have let's say an admin uh, uh, officer role we probably will invite about 20 people for a written test and um, and that written test will be you know about the job so the test will will be given online it'll have like let's say 10 questions you have 90 minutes time so it's very important that the, the the questions are answered precisely, not any other question, but the question that is being asked, and that the presentation and the language and everything is is well well done. The answer should be structured well, and uh, clearly written, and so on. And then applicants have to make sure that they budget their time very well and not spend uh, an awful lot of time on the first three questions and then run out of time for the for the last three. That's that's not such a good thing. So. It's good to take an overview and then plan the thing and then, you know, make a good submission and send it in in the time that is allocated. Mm. Then we come to the interview stage. And here, the interview boards usually uh, consist of a number of, uh, of colleagues who, who have had training in competency-based interviewing. This means that the interview will ask candidates candidates to, to give specific examples from their careers, not to answer a question hypothetically, but, but, but when the question is, well, tell us about a time when you had to, to make a difficult decision, then we want to hear a precise example about when the candidate had to make a difficult decision. How did he do it? What, the, what was on his or her mind? How did they plan it? How did they deal with the, with the aftermath and so on? Not, you know, I would if I could and, uh, you know, not, uh, not, not hypothetical. Right. And so it's always good to, to think about these hypothetical examples a little bit in advance. And, you know, if I'm asked about the most difficult decision or the most difficult situation or um, my, my biggest um, uh, success or my biggest disaster, um, th those kinds of things one should think about in advance. Because in the interview, there simply isn't time to, you know, start uh, mm. doing a, a, a big uh, long search. Um, this is another... Um, this is another piece of advice that could be useful. Um, yeah, so, and then when answering the questions, of course, in an interview, I think candidates should expect about, you know, eight to ten questions. They should listen very carefully to, to, to what the question is and then take a moment to think and then, and then structure their response uh, uh, very well. And uh, not ramble on, not go on forever, but but to be concise, but give the the essential uh, information that is asked in a in a in a well structured way. 
And maybe the final piece of advice when it comes to interviewing is that candidates should do quite a bit of research about the organization that they're applying for. And, uh, and they should know the basics. Uh, they should know the mandate, the governance uh, structure. They should know the budget, the staff, the locations, the issues. Uh, what are the challenges the organization is facing? What, what are the, the key successes and so on? So that they can, um, you know, make a, a, a better interview altogether and 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 respond to questions, you know, more, more intelligently. Mm. It's it, it is very um, very frustrating for an interview panel to sit there and to to find out that a candidate is completely clueless about what an organization is all about, and it, that does not leave a good impression. So it, it's time well spent to go to the website and to do quite a bit of research uh, about the organization. Mm. Excellent, Cornelia. That was the. Um, I think that making sure that you have the criterias that are asked for in the job description before you even send an application and, yeah. and make sure that if there are um, requirements asked for, make sure that the recruiter can spot those requirements quite easily. And already maybe in, in the um, in the application, make clear of, of the achievements that you have made uh, that are in line with what the organization that you are asking for in the job description. And, and plan for the test, make sure that you prepare for the interview, prepare for the competency-based interviews. And, and we also have um, um, articles about this on, on the UN Job Fund website and, and make research about the organization. I think that all that are really valuable advice and i think that it's it's critical that our listeners really li listen to this and of course they will be able to go through this over and over again by we will have the, the full transcript of, of this um, podcast on the website but also of course by listening to this over and over again so thank you so much for for that cornelia i think it was really excellent advice yeah. So um, I want to respect your time. I can see that we have been talking now for quite some time. Um, <laughs> um, my final question was actually if, if you had any other final tips, but I think that if you want to add something, please do. But I think that also what you gave us here now last was um, excellent. So anything be before we end that you want to share with our listeners? No, I think that... Um... Patience is another thing that uh, that is needed. I think many people apply for many UN jobs, and and uh, this is quite normal. It, it usually doesn't happen the first time that they that they succeed. But um, you know, uh, interviewing is also about practice. Hmm. So I think people have to be patient, and um, and they get better and better, and uh, eventually they um, they will succeed. I, I I hope I wish the listeners uh, uh, good luck and. Um, and uh, hope to see many of them um, um, come through. Excellent. Thank you so much, Cornelia, and, and thank you for being with us today and for being willing to share all of your insights and experience and, and what you have told us has been extremely valuable. So thank you so much. A great pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Cornelia Musa. Cornelia, thank you so much for joining the show. 
you'll find show notes for this episode, transcript of everything we said at uinjobfinder.org forward slash podcasts. If you want to be sure that you receive all new episodes, then please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher. Showing what you think of this show and leaving an honest review on iTunes is something that we really appreciate. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.